Good morning. Let me start by just wishing a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. And let me say, in the hearing of all of you, that of all of the mothers in the world, you are the best. And I love you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look to your word, you would reveal to us the glory of your Son. That is not something that we can grasp in our own wisdom, our own strength. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll get right into the text this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You think about the Gospels, the four books of the Bible that we have that are about the life and death of Jesus. It is true that every passage in the Gospels is glorious because Jesus is glorious. With that said, Within the four Gospels, uh, within the Gospel of Luke, there's just some texts that especially clearly reveal to us the glory of Christ. In our passage this morning, uh, the transfiguration, this has to be right up there towards the very top of the list with some of the most glorious passages in the entire Bible. But before we get to the passage itself, we need to remember how we got here. It's always, remember, it's always important for us to remember the context of any passage, but I think that's especially true here. Look at how Luke draws special attention to the context in the way he begins a narrative. Now, about eight days after these sayings, and so you say eight days after what sayings? Well, let's remember what we talked about last Sunday. Peter, on behalf of the disciples, he confesses, that Jesus is the Christ of God, the confession of the Christ. And then Jesus uses that confession 
to teach them two important things. First, the crucifixion of the Christ. The fact that, look back to verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right? That's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, his mission. And second, the call of the Christ. Right? What his disciples are then called to. A life of denying oneself, taking up one's cross daily and following Jesus. So it's those sayings that Luke is referring to here. Eight days after that teaching at Caesarea Philippi, we now have the events of the transfiguration. That link, that introduction, it's more than just a chronological one. It's also a crucial thematic link. Uh, Jesus has just taught his disciples some really challenging things. Like, yes, he's the Christ, just like they confessed, but he's not the Christ that they envisioned. He would be a suffering Christ, a beaten and mocked and spat upon Christ, a, a crucified, died, and buried Christ. That would have been difficult to reconcile with their first century Jewish notions of what the Messiah would be like. Wait, what, what happened to the glorious Christ that we were expecting? And then on top of that, he's talking about how they too are called to live a life of suffering and difficulty, taking up their crosses daily. Wait, what about the glorious kingdom that we thought you were going to bring about? And so the transfiguration is, at least in part, an answer to those questions. A counter to any temptations they might have to second-guess this whole following Jesus thing. What happened to the glorious Christ? Oh, he's very much here. You're looking right at him. Yes, Jesus is going to suffer and he's going to die. But that's on the road to glory. And yes, you disciples, you are going to suffer and die. But that too is on the road to glory. So in spite of all of the seemingly inglorious things that are about to happen, all of it is still on the road to glory. Now that glory is going to become more fully manifest after the sufferings and death and crucifixion, through the resurrection and ascension and session, And that glory is ultimately going to be revealed at the second coming. Look back at verse 26. When he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But as a guarantee of all of that future glory. As this surety that in spite of the seemingly inglorious nature of much of what's about to happen. That the promised glory of the kingdom of God will indeed come about. Three of the disciples are given a sneak preview of that glory. As Jesus said in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so one way to think about the transfiguration is as a guarantee, a guarantee of sorts, to some of the disciples, to a select group of the coming glory of the kingdom. An assurance of the glory to come that's going to enable them to joyfully endure any trials and suffering that they might face for the cause of that kingdom. And so to that end, in this transfiguration narrative, Luke records for us three testimonies. 
the three testimonies that serve to assure the disciples that all that glory stuff that Jesus was talking about is real. In spite of the hard road ahead. And so let's just think about those testimonies one at a time. First, we'll look at the testimony of Jesus' glory. That's in verses 28 and 29, the testimony of Jesus' glory. Then we'll see the testimony of two Old Testament heroes in verses 30 to 33. And last, we'll look at the testimony of the Father in verses 34 through 36. So first, let's consider the testimony of Jesus' glory. Look at verse 28. So here we find Jesus. He's taking with him Peter, James, and John. And they're going up to pray on a mountain. Now that should make our spider senses tingle in two ways. First, we talked about this last week. Right? When Luke mentions that Jesus is praying, we know that something important is about to happen. But second, we got a double whammy here because they're going up on a mountain. I will leave you with the fun exercise of tracing that theme throughout the scriptures of important events in redemptive history happening on mountains. And so if our intuitions in verse 28 are correct, like something significant is right around the corner, and boom, just like we thought, verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus is transfigured. That is pretty significant. Matthew adds the detail here that his face shone like the sun. The language of one's face shining, that kind of reminds us of what happened with Moses. I remember when Moses' face shone after he spoke with God. But that was entirely different from this because that was a reflection of God's glory on Moses' face. This is Jesus' own glory shining forth from within him. And Mark gives us the additional imagery that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, whether that's his actual clothes themselves changing or they just looked dazzling white because Jesus is like shining through them, we don't know. But in all of this, Jesus is literally shining radiant light. Friends, remember that Jesus, as he walked on earth, there was really nothing unique or special about how he looked. As Isaiah 53 prophesied about him, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He looked like any ordinary Jewish man. But in the transfiguration, for at least these few moments, Jesus didn't look anything like an ordinary man, anything like humble and lowly. No, his appearance is exalted. His appearance is awesome in the true sense of that word, right? Inspiring awe. Now, it's important for us to remember that what's happening here is not that his, his nature is changing. Like, he is not becoming more divine or anything like that. No, he's just as much God here as he always has been and always will be. But while he walked around on earth... His true glory was veiled, 
veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And here, his outward appearance changes to reflect some of that true glory. Like Hebrew says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Right? That's what's on display here. That he is, like when we recite the Nicene Creed, we say that he is light of light, very God of very God. That's what's going on here. And when light of light is standing before you like that, you just can't help but fix your eyes. Look ahead real quick to verse 32. It says that while all this is happening, well, the disciples are heavy with sleep. And you know what that's describing, right? Your eyelids weigh a ton, and you're just you're fighting and struggling to stay awake. Some of you right now are heavy with sleep. But when they see this, this, this effulgent glory of God before their eyes, well, they became fully awake. It's like a, a bucket of ice water is poured on their heads. They're as awake as can be, as alert as can be, just taking it all in. And importantly, that glory that they're seeing, right, Jesus' glory in that moment, well, that would have served them as a testimony of his future glory. Right? This, yes, this right here, this is the glory that he was talking about. This is the glory of the king. This is the glory of the kingdom that he's been talking about. This is the glorious Messiah that we're following. And point number one, the testimony of Jesus' glory. Well, that brings us now to point number two. The testimony of two Old Testament heroes, Moses and Elijah, appear on the scene. Now, to any Jew back then, like Peter and James and John, these two guys are heroes. These are the two of the goats of the Old Testament, or the greatest of all time. These are their heroes. Now, their appearance naturally raises some questions for us. How do they get there? What it says in verse 31, that they appeared in glory, like, what does that mean? And how did the disciples recognize that they were Moses and Elijah? They were wearing, like, name tags or something? Like, how did they know? Well, those questions we just don't know the answer to, and I'm not sure speculation is going to be too helpful. But here's one question we should ask. Why them? Why Moses and Elijah? Like, if it's just testimony from Old Testament heroes that we're looking for, Old Testament greats, like, I don't know, why not Abraham and David? Why not Joshua and Ezra? Well, the text doesn't say, but I think we can take a pretty educated guess. And that guess comes from the fact that the Old Testament, the first 39 books of our Bible, the Old Testament is never in the Bible called the Old Testament. Rather, it's often referred to as the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets. Look at Luke 16, 29. Abraham said, they have, referring to the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. 
And so if Moses is representative of the law, and Elijah is representative of the prophets, then we have, standing in front of Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration, a symbolic representation of all that has come before in terms of God's revelation. You've got the law, and you've got the prophets. You've got Moses and Elijah. You've got the entire Old Testament represented. But that doesn't quite answer our question, because why then do we need representatives from the Old Testament to appear with Jesus? Well, the answer is in the topic of conversation between them. Like, what are these three men? All great men of God in their own respects. What are these three men talking about? Are they talking about Moses? How God used, to bring, God used him to bring about the ten plagues and, and the parting of the Red Sea and that whole Exodus thing. How he led the Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness. Oh, tell us the story about the bronze serpent. Moses, tell us about how you handled Korah's rebellion. How'd you feel on Mount Sinai? Were they talking about Moses? Or were they talking about Elijah's accomplishments? Tell us about Mount Carmel. That's a great story. What was it like being taken up in a whirlwind? I just do that thing with the, the flour and the oil. That was kind of cool. Are they talking about Elijah? No and no. The topic of conversation is neither Moses nor Elijah. Rather, verse 31, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking about Jesus. But what's this about his departure? Well, it could be just a euphemism for his death. Kind of like we would refer to the dearly departed or someone who went to be with the Lord. But if you have an ESV, you should have a little footnote there next to the word departure. It's the Greek word exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish. And so this is referring to more than just his death. It's referring to his death and his resurrection, and his ascension, the entire mission to deliver, think Exodus, deliver captives to freedom. And so Moses is standing there. Moses delivered the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians in the first Exodus. Well, so Jesus would free sinners from slavery to sin through his Exodus, breaking the power of canceled sin, setting the prisoners free. And he would accomplish it not by using Passover lambs like Moses did, but by being the Passover lamb. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. By dying on the cross for our sins so that those who believe in him might be freed from the bondage of sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like that, that, the atoning death and justifying resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, that's what they're talking about. Those are things into which angels long to look. And it turns out Old Testament heroes aren't all that different. So again, why do Moses 
and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's to talk to Jesus about his exodus. But remember, that's exactly what he was talking about earlier with his disciples in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So let's tie it all together here. For Peter, James, and John, for those disciples, as they hear Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, talking to Jesus about his death and his resurrection, his exodus, you see, it's another testimony legitimizing that, yes, this is what must happen according to the law and the prophets. According to the Old Testament, this is what must happen. Because this is all of what the law and the prophets pointed to. It's what Moses' exodus pointed to. It's what Elijah's ministry pointed to. And so here, with these witnesses, the disciples have further assurance that all of that suffering then glory stuff that Jesus was talking about, yeah, that's real. It's even got Moses and Elijah's weighty endorsements. Point number two, the testimony of Old Testament heroes. So these Old Testament heroes, they've now done what they've come to do, and so they're ready to go. And it's as they're departing, as they're leaving, that Peter interjects. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter's just loving this moment. It is good that we are here. And of course he would love it. I mean, here's Jesus in his glory, and he is talking to two of your heroes, Moses and Elijah. Like, this is awesome. And he's loving it so much. But as he sees Moses and Elijah getting ready to leave, he thinks, no, 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 no. I, I, I don't want this to end. Let's build three tents. You can all just stay right here as you are right now. The commentators tell us that all of this is happening in the fall months, around the time of the Feast of Booths in which the Jews would live in tents for a week to celebrate God's provision for them, celebrate the harvest, remember God's faithfulness to them in the time of the wilderness wanderings. And so it's very possible that that's on Peter's mind right now. Let's put up some tents. Let's put up some booths. We don't have to go home. But even as Luke says at the end of verse 33, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, surely that's happened to you. You just kind of get caught up in the moment. Maybe there's some other emotions kind of mixed in. Mark tells us that they were terrified. He's terrified. He's awestruck. He just kind of blurts something out without really thinking, not knowing what he said. And so you kind of feel bad for Peter. I mean, I know I've said many things, not really knowing what I'm saying, Things that I've later regretted, right? The proverb is true. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. 
And so Peter's just like us in that regard, except our foolish words are often quickly forgotten. These are forever preserved in the words of Scripture. And so here we are 2,000 years later talking about that thing that he said on the Mount of Transfiguration when he didn't really know what he was saying. Kind of feel bad for him, but I think he's doing all right. So I don't really feel too bad for him. But what was wrong with what Peter says here? What's the problem? Well, three things. First, and Peter, what you're witnessing before your eyes, like what you are seeing on that Mount of Transfiguration, is nothing less than God incarnate in his glory. Oh, Peter, you know your Bible well enough to know that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. You know Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Come on, Peter. Christ reveals to you his glory, and all you can think about is trying to contain that glory, like preserve and box up that glory in a little tent that you're going to make with your own hands. Second, second problem with what Peter says here, Peter's kind of missing the point in his attempt to build three tents of honor. Because the specialness of the transfiguration, what he's so desperate to prolong and preserve, it's not that Moses and Elijah are there. It's that Jesus is there in his glory. Moses and Elijah just like with their earthly ministries, they're just there to point to Jesus, right? to give witness and testimony to Jesus. So the very suggestion that there be three tents built, putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus, when Peter shows, he's kind of missing the point. The third, or perhaps most importantly, in his attempt to keep things exactly as they were. And he's just loving this moment and wanting to prolong it and preserve it by building some tents. Well, Peter's missing the point in yet another way. The point that this was always meant to be temporary. Like this is meant by design to be temporary, not permanent. It's like training wheels on a bike or being engaged, or a Knicks playoff run. And the point of the transfiguration was never to bring about the glory of the kingdom then and there on that mountain for the six of them to bask in that glory. No, the point of the transfiguration is to give the disciples a sneak preview of the kingdom that Jesus is ultimately going to bring about through what he was about to accomplish in the months to come. Now, let me put it another way. If they just stayed up on that mountain, like Peter wanted them to, then Jesus can't accomplish the exodus that he was talking about. If they just stay up on that mountain, Jesus can't do everything that Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets foreshadowed that he would do. The Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected and must be killed and must on the third day be raised. And none of that is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Son of Man is hanging out in a tent there, 
None of that's going to be accomplished. No, he's got to go down and he's got to set his face to Jerusalem. And so Peter, it's not just that you can't preserve this. It's that if you do preserve this, Jesus can't accomplish the reality that this preview is pointing to. Yes, Peter, this is glorious, but it's only pointing forward to a greater glory that's coming after the rejection and suffering and death that await Jesus at the bottom of that mountain. It's only after he accomplishes all that that the Christ will enter into his glory and his disciples eventually with him. So Peter, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Brings us to point number three, the testimony of the Father. So Peter's rather hasty and misinformed suggestion is then interrupted. Look at verse 34. As he was saying these things, he's interrupted by the presence of an overshadowing cloud. Now if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know what that means. Because throughout the Bible, clouds typically represent the presence of the glory of God. Like when God led the Israelites through the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of cloud. When God gave the law to Moses on Sinai, a cloud covered the mountain. Or you remember when the cloud filled the tabernacle or the cloud filled the temple, signifying God's presence and glory in that place. So over and over and over, we see that picture in the Old Testament And that's exactly what we've got here. The presence of God manifested in cloud form and out of that cloud comes a voice, undeniably that of God the Father. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of the gospel, You'll remember we already studied a very similar declaration by God the Father at Jesus' baptism. So this, just like that, this is an affirmation from heaven as to who Jesus is. But you see here, in the context of Luke chapter 9, think about Luke chapter 9. This directly connects to the question that's been in the background of the entire chapter. The all-important question of who is Jesus? You remember the crowd say, well, maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's one of the prophets of old. And Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, troubled in his conscience, says, oh, no, that's, that's definitely John the Baptist raised from the dead. And those answers, of course, are completely wrong. Well, then Peter on behalf of the disciples, tries to answer that question by saying, you are the Christ of God. And like we said last week, that's the right answer, but they don't quite understand what it means that he's the Christ. And so against the backdrop of those wrong answers, and this kind of like halfway there answer, now God the Father gives the definitive final word. Who is Jesus? This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son. Clear echoes of Psalm 2. Jesus is none other than the son of God. 
eternally begotten, one with God in essence, very God of very God. My chosen one, clear echoes of Isaiah 42. Jesus is none other than the chosen servant, the spirit-anointed Messiah from the book of Isaiah. But it's this last phrase I want to draw our attention to now, where God the Father says about Jesus, listen to him. Listen to him. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 18. Moses is talking about the prophet like him that God would raise up, which was fulfilled, of course, in Jesus. And so again, we see that Moses, as great of an Old Testament hero as he might have been, might have been well, Moses just serves to point to the one to come, a prophet like him, a prophet greater than him, Jesus. It is to him that the disciples are to listen. Not taking anything away from Moses, not taking anything away from Elijah, both great servants of God in their own respects, but Jesus is on an entirely different level. So Peter, stop talking about three tenths. Those guys are servants of God. But this is God incarnate. You should listen to Moses. You should listen to Elijah. But you see, Moses and Elijah are just pointing you to Jesus. And so really what you really need to do, Peter, is listen to Jesus. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Moses's and Elijah's. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So listen to him. And remember the idea of the transfiguration being assurance for the disciples. Yes, Jesus has just spoken to you about some really hard things, some really difficult things. He's spoken to you about his sufferings and death. And he's spoken to you about your sufferings and death on his behalf. Those are hard things that he's saying. But you see, all of it has the divine approval of heaven. It's all according to God's perfect plan. And so here is an endorsement from none other than God the Father himself. Listen to him. Even when he tells you very difficult things, listen to him. Even when he tells you to deny yourself, listen to him. Even when he tells you to take up your cross daily, listen to him. Point number three, the testimony of the Father. So in this transfiguration narrative, lots of things are going on one of the important things that's happening here is that the disciples receive assurance. Assurance that this suffering Messiah, he is the one to follow, no matter what the cost. And that assurance, as we saw, comes in the form of three testimonies. First, the testimony of Jesus' glory as he is transfigured before them. Second, the testimony of two Old Testament heroes as Moses and Elijah show up. And third, and most definitively, the testimony of God the Father. 
Are those three spectacular testimonies now complete? No. The party's over. Everyone's gone home. Moses? Gone. And Elijah? He's gone. Between the two of them, they've done so much for the kingdom of God, but this is not their exodus to accomplish. It's Jesus's, and Jesus is alone. And so verse 36, after all this, Jesus was found alone. So that's the story. Hopefully you now understand what happened at the transfiguration better than when you came in this morning. Let me leave you, though, with two application points. Given what happened on that mountain, on that glorious day, well, how should we then live? Application point number one is simply to behold his glory. Behold his glory. See, in the story, what we have, we have three men, Peter, James, John, the three men who behold the glory of Christ on that mountain. They see him, if for only a few moments, but they see him in his glory. Here's the thing. When one sees the glory of God like that, that is a powerful way of changing you. Throughout the scriptures, when someone has an encounter with the glory of God, whether it's Abraham or Jacob or Moses or Isaiah or Ezekiel, when someone has an encounter with the glory of God, it just changes you forever. And the disciples here are no different. Now granted, it does take them some time It's only after Jesus dies and rises again that everything begins to click for them and they really understand what they then saw on that mountain. But Peter, James, and John, they were forever changed by what they saw. Now James would be the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death. That's recorded in the book of Acts. And so we don't really have a record from him of how he understood the transfiguration But the other two guys, well, even today, we just have to flip over a few pages and we can read their testimonies as to what happened on that day and the impact that it left on them. Let's start with John. Turn to John 1, verse 14, a well-known verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, John, where did you see that glory? Surely in many places, at many times, but perhaps nowhere more clearly than on that Mount of Transfiguration, we beheld his glory. Impacted by that glory? Changed by that glory? Well, John would go on to write what's been called the Gospel of Glory, right? The book of John, a gospel that clearly presents to us a truly glorious Christ. What about Peter? We'll take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, Peter, when and where were you eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty? Verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were with him on the holy mountain. That's his testimony of the transfiguration. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty, and that's, at least in part, what emboldens him to continue with Christ until the day comes when he really did have to take up his own cross, just like Jesus said. What about me and you? Well, unlike Peter and John and even James, we're never going to have an experience like that. No, that experience was reserved for only three people in human history. But the principle is the same. That beholding the glory of God, beholding the glory of Christ, it necessarily changes us. 2 Corinthians 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so when we behold the glory of the Lord, when we behold the glory of the Lord by reading and meditating on his word, by worshiping together with the church, and by singing and giving thanks by earnestly seeking his face through prayer, by trusting him through the deepest trials, by walking in the Spirit, by loving his people, by being obedient to his commands, by delighting in his attributes, so much more. When we behold the glory of God, we are necessarily transformed. And not just transformed in this general sense, but specifically, Romans 8, conform to the image of his son. We become more like Jesus. Just like the disciples who saw the glory of Jesus on that mountain, they were forever changed. So when we truly behold the glory of Jesus, we too are forever changed. And so friends, if you apply this passage, this text in any way this week, let it be to behold your God. Behold his glory. This is crucial for your Christian life. Just day-to-day practical Christian life. Like if you are genuinely going to walk as a disciple of Jesus, because here's the thing, if Jesus is not glorious to you, then a life of self-denial for his sake is just not going to be worth it. If Jesus is not glorious to you, then taking up your cross to follow him, that is just not going to be worth it. If Jesus is not glorious to you, then being a true disciple of his, it's just going to be far too costly of an endeavor. But to the one who does behold his glory, who sees Jesus rightly as the glorious one, 
well, then there's no cost too high in following him. The hymn is spot on. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Behold him, behold him in his glory. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. Application point number one, behold his glory. Application point number two, listen to him. We'll let God have the last word here by looking at his last words in this passage. Listen to him. And we've already talked about what that means, listen to him, like especially in the context of this passage. It means listen to Jesus, even as he tells you about his suffering, and even as he tells you about your suffering, and he tells you about his cross, and he tells you about your cross. Listen to him. But here now, as we think about how to apply this to our lives, well, the question is, how, how do we do that? How can we listen to him? The answer to that question, well, let's look again at Peter's testimony of what exactly he saw on that day. Second uh, Peter 1, we're starting in verse 18 this time. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So clearly this is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? That very voice born from heaven, well, among other things, confirmed, commanded that they listen to him. But now, look at where Peter goes next. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see what Peter's saying here? It's an astounding a remarkable, just jaw-dropping truth. He is saying that even though he saw with his own two eyes the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, like as glorious as that experience was, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in the scriptures. Friends, that's a remarkable statement that there is no greater, more reliable testimony of God's glory than the Word of God itself. And so how do we listen to him? We can't see Jesus. We can't go up on that Mount of Transfiguration. We can't experience what the disciples experienced there. We can't hear him speak. So how do we listen to him? Well, we don't have those things but we have the word of God and the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And so we would do very well, like Peter says, to pay attention. Because God speaks through his word in a way that's just as real and powerful and life-changing as a voice in a cloud on the mountain. And like Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed.
Blessed are those who have not been on the Mount of Transfiguration and yet have believed. Friends, that's me and that's you. If we listen to him, if we listen to him by reading and meditating on and memorizing and applying and loving and cherishing the word of God, that's us. Listen to him. So friends, application point number two is to listen to him as he speaks through his word. So take up and read. Take up and read, expecting that God will speak to you through his word. And take up and read with the the sense of anticipation that the disciples must have had up on that mountain. Take up and read, trusting that as you behold his glory through his word, that you too will be conformed into the image of his son. Father, what a glorious, glorious passage. Our words cannot do it justice. Father, we pray that the Spirit would imprint these truths into our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name.